this is Dr. Bob Evans, and welcome to our podcast, Parental Alienation from Couch to Courtroom and Beyond. We will discuss the resisting and refusing dynamic, commonly referred to as parental alienation, how you'll know it's happening in your case, and what can be done about it. Parental alienation can cause stress and trauma in high-conflict cases. These podcasts focus on how attorneys and mental health professionals can support families and children. This is Dr. Bob Evans, and welcome to our new podcast focusing on the phenomenon of parental alienation, moving from therapist's couch to the courtroom and beyond. So, welcome to episode three. Today, we're going to talk about the believability of children. Should we believe children? Should we believe children no matter what they say? Should we believe everything that children say? Or do we believe none of what they say because, well, we know they're not very reliable? Well, let's look at this research, primarily done by Dr. Stephen Cece out of Cornell. So ever since the witch trials, both the ones in the United States and Europe, children were viewed in disbelief. They could say such obviously false things, unbelievable things, but sometimes, as a consequence, people lost their lives in some cases, and maybe some people were incarcerated, all because of what children said. So for a long time, a very long time, courts have avoided having children as witnesses. In fact, Florida, for example, has administrative code that discourages judges from speaking directly to child witnesses. You know, judges have uh, a lot of freedom. They sometimes ignore that administrative code. There have been studies of suggestibility since the late 1800s. That's how far back it goes. And they demonstrated that not only children, but adults as well, have problems with suggestibility. People can be gullible, and they incorporate suggestions that others gave them. But it wasn't until the 1980s that we realized that we really needed to know a lot more about children's reliability to testify especially now because the floodgates have opened and kids are coming into the courtrooms a whole lot more than they used to. Children's statements sometimes are accurate and sometimes they're not. There are two ways that a child's statement can be inaccurate. They can be inaccurate because the child's lying or they can be inaccurate because they've come to believe what they're saying or telling the court, but they're wrong. So let's talk about children's memories and the various things that can corrupt their memories. As an example, there was a case that involved a young boy where his mother disappeared when he was around four years old. After a few months, his father moved out and left him and a sibling with a maternal aunt. The mother was never located until several years later, some new people purchased the home and started doing some excavating and building on the house, building an addition on the house. And while they were excavating the the land um, to build an additional foundation or whatever, during the construction, they discovered the skeletal remains of the mother's body. 
and the coroner's report indicated that the mother had died by a blow of a blunt instrument to the cranium. The aunt, who's been now raising the boy for the past two years and didn't like the dad anyway, starts saying to the boy, do you remember your dad ever hitting your mom with something to the head? At first, the boy doesn't remember, but over time, allegedly, he comes to remember a fight between the mom and the dad and the dad hitting the mother with a baseball bat in the head and carrying her body out to the back door. So that's how the case goes to court. The judge asks a simple question, a reasonable question. He asked, should I believe the boy? Just about everyone suspected the father killed the mother, but the only evidence of that incident was the evidence from a six-year-old boy, his resurrected memory, and actually one couldn't be too impressed by that. Memory is not something mechanical system. It's not a mechanical recording system like the hard drive on your computer or a camera. It, it isn't storing snapshots. It's, it's just not how it works. It works in a very abstract way, in a way that allows you to reconstruct a lot of things and bring it together in a way that's new and different every time you retrieve the memory. It's very responsive to the environment. In other words, what's happening around you at the time. So if I was going to tell you about, oh, let's say um, uh, an experience I had during my vacation last summer. Well, every time I tell you about my vacation last summer, I'm going to give you different details. My story is going to evolve, if you will, and think different things are going to come to mind. So our memories are very responsive to the environment, and it's, it's very responsive to the type of questions that are being asked and how suggestive those questions are and how far apart they're spaced, etc. So most of the research on children's recollections is used more by one side than the other. Dr. C.C.'s lab at Cornell primarily, although not exclusively, has produced a stream of research that is easy to use to create reasonable doubt. So it's used by the defense more than a prosecution, although Dr. C.C. claims he has several studies that are much more favorable to the prosecution. There was a case in Dade County, Florida, and at that time, the DA was prosecuting a 15-year-old boy named Bobby. Bobby was a volunteer in a church-run daycare where families would come to services on a Sunday, and they would leave their children in a part of a church that ran the daycare operation while the parents or the adults were in the service. So when he was 12 years old, Bobby was arrested and was charged on multiple counts of sexually molesting multiple children. Even the prosecution agreed at the time that he couldn't have done a lot of what the other kids were saying he did to them. Some of it was so bizarre, some of it was even impossible. Some of you might remember some of the daycare cases that went on in New Jersey and I think California as well. But even if even if this kid Bobby did some of what they were saying, he was looking at life without parole. And if they convicted him on a single if they convicted him on a single count, he would spend the rest of his life in prison. Well, like most cases where you have multiple allegations, mass allegations, like the daycare cases or the school bus cases, you get children contaminating other children with their reports over time. This sort of thing tends to marinate, if you will, and grow in terms of what children remember in terms of recollection. And by the way, this happens in families where there are siblings 
and the siblings can contaminate each other's memories. And so you get these children who are interviewed by evaluators or um, uh, GALs, etc. You need to be careful with what kind of conclusions you walk away with. And so what you end up with is a constellation of allegations, some of which are possible, even plausible. Others are probably very impossible. And you often get, often get this when you have a mix of things that are possible, that are bizarre and, and outrageous. And so there's, there's been this de- debate, if you will. You know, do you exclude everything a child says because there's some bizarre stuff? Therefore, do you say that the plausible stuff couldn't have happened either? Defense attorneys would like to say, well, where do you draw the line? You know, that's a lot of what the child's telling you is fictitious. So how do you know just, just because they say something, something that might be plausible, that it's truthful? Well, that's reasonable doubt, isn't it? And that's a good point. But in terms of the research, it's possible for kids to say some things that are accurate and some things that are highly inaccurate. So where do we go from here? Dr. Cece designed some studies that incorporated case factors such as emotional arousal, embarrassment, and painful experiences. Keep in mind some of the arguments against some of this research as well. This is the laboratory, and it's sort of like, you know, do you remember words that teachers say or whatever? And so it's not very, it's not very impactful. It's not emotional. It, it's not real life. So it's one thing to say that children are suggestible about other people. It's another thing to say they're suggestible about someone torturing them or handcuffing them or chaining them and abusing them. So Dr. Cece decided to look at that. So we've known for a long time that children are susceptible. So are adults, by the way. But the question becomes, under what underlying mechanisms drive this suggestibility? There was a researcher by the name of Sarah Kokowski who worked with Dr. Cece and examined three different boundaries of this research. The boundaries were memory, the law, and language. And she says maybe, maybe what's going on is that children's suggestibility is a function of how they create and remember narratives, how good they are at creating cohesive, coherent, high-volume narratives. So Cece uses a, uh, the word suggestibility to refer to any event, either verbal or pictorial, and it can be any, uh, it can be before an experience that a child has, or it could be after an experience a child has that damages their memory accuracy. So, we're talking about suggestibility. Can be an event, can be verbal, can be pictorial. It can happen before the child's memories disrupted, or it can happen after the experience that damages the child's memory. So after viewing a life event, children were handed a sticker. And they could put the sticker anywhere they wanted to. They could put it on their arm, their leg, their nose, whatever. And most of the kids put the sticker on their forehead, and they all kind of followed one another. So everybody had this little sticker on their forehead. Afterwards, they were interviewed about what happened in the classroom. And the interviewer kept coming back and saying to the kids that the teacher put a sticker on their knee. Now, many at first said, no, no, she didn't do that. And they explained that you could put the sticker on where you wanted to. And these are little kids. So after the repeated questioning and telling each child that other children told her that the teacher put the sticker on their knee, they then began to acknowledge, yes, 
the teacher put the sticker on their knee. So did you ever get your hand caught in a mousetrip? It was a very famous study, very well done study that CC did. And the researchers have come to realize that you could move from suggesting observations, in other words, what we see happening outside of us, and eyewitness actions or acts, like what someone else did, to not someone else, but to you, yourself, and can involve something very salient, something having to do with genital touching, sexual abuse. And that's pretty realistic and real world. So according to CC there did not appear to be any boundaries beyond which suggestion didn't take a toll on children's accuracy of reporting. In other words, this concept of suggestibility not only applies to what we observe happening outside of us, it also applies to what happens to us. Cece was interested in whether you could take a child who didn't have an experience at all and lead them to believe that they did. So the mousetrap study was designed to test exactly that. They took a group of children whose parents assured the researchers that they never got their hands caught in a mousetrap and they never had to go to the hospital to get it removed. So these are totally naive subjects relative to the experience of getting a mousetrap stuck on your hand. The children were asked, point blank, did you ever get your hand caught in the mousetrap and have to go to the hospital to get it removed? And they all said, it never happened. We don't even have mouse traps in the house. Didn't happen. Children then came back a week later and they were asked, did you ever get your hand caught in the mouse trap and have to go to the hospital to get it removed? The children would think, hmm. They'd say, I remember something about a mouse trap." And then after about the sixth, the seventh, the eighth week of going through this by with an interviewer, the children started to start saying, yeah, I remember something about the mousetrap and getting my finger caught in it. And they were starting to embellish the stories about what they claimed happened and how their dad opened the van door and put them in the van and their mother and their brother and dad, everybody drove to the hospital and a nurse took the mousetrap off the hand and they bandaged the fingers and, and they, could, they could elaborate on their stories and their narratives because they were getting induced to develop mental images of something that didn't happen simply by asking them week in and week out. Think about it. Close your eyes and think about it. Did you ever get your finger caught in the mousetrap? So the first time, they close their eyes and they generate that image. Doesn't match anything in memory. Next week, they close their eyes, they generate that image. It does match something in memory. What it matches is the image they created the week before. Children in particular have a really difficult time monitoring the differences between things that they imagined versus things that they actually saw because both leave a mental imprint, a memory. And that kind of source discrimination is very difficult, especially for children. All of us have a problem with it, adults as well, but children are particularly hurt by those kinds of techniques. John Strassel did a uh, program years ago, and I think it was back in the 80s, on 2020. And he did a story, I believe, that the boy was uh, convinced that he was bitten by a rat or a snake in the basement under a woodpile. And he maintained that he was bitten, that he was taken to the hospital, he was treated, 
and everything. And the parents and John Strassel took the kids to the basement. They didn't have a wood pile. They didn't. They had no rats or snakes in the basement. They told the kid that this was not real. It really never happened. He imagined it. The kid didn't believe it. So one of the things that CC got into is the whole idea on stereotypes, a little different shift in this whole uh, false memory research that, that he didn't have a lot, of, a lot of research on the use of stereotypes. So it was an example uh, is a parent saying to a child, I don't want you to go to so-and-so's house because the man there is a jailbird, stereotypes, a jailbird. He's a bad person. He's a criminal. He's a drug addict. He's an alcoholic. This example... Uh, the parent was actually creating a negative stereotype about this person. Well, you know, some parents in highly adversarial divorces create stereotypes of the other parent. You know, this whole podcast is about parental alienation, and that's what happens. So these children learn about the other parent, and they're being manipulated into believing some negative things about that parent and ultimately encouraged, reinforced to reject that parent. So Dr. Cece was very interested in to what extent the children start to conform to stereotypes over time. He told his lab, we don't know much about, there's like 12 different types of stereotypes that he was looking into, so he designed some studies. Children are witnesses to some event. A man named Sam, this is a Sam Stone study, a man named Sam came to their school and they corroborate each other uh, the children did about certain things that Sam did like when he visited, but they also contradict each other about other things. So the interviewer says, I, want, I wasn't there uh, the day that Sam showed up, so I want to know everything that happened on the day Sam came to your class. Some of the kids told the interviewer, Sam broke arms off of a doll, ripped pages from a book, he put ice cream on a teddy bear. Now, Sam was a pretty despicable guy, you know, in this classroom. Well, the reality is Sam didn't do any of those things. He didn't rip anything, tear anything, soil anything. He didn't throw anything. None of them. One child was accurate in her responding to the interviewer. She was a little girl, and she was rated as being the least accurate by most professionals who worked on this study. All of the children saw Sam do simply, all the children saw Sam do, it's kind of hard to say, was simply go into the classroom, say hi, he smiled, walked around, and then he said goodbye. He didn't tear anything, he didn't soil anything, he didn't throw anything. So how can you get kids to say things that persuade professionals, judges, custodial evaluators, guardian ad litems, children's attorneys? How can you get kids to say things to persuade these professionals, and yet they're wrong? They're given false stereotypes about Sam. They're told things that simply aren't true about how klutzy, clumsy, rude Sam was, how he was always breaking things, spilling things, and so on. They were interviewed four times over eight weeks very suggestively. How suggestively? Well, the interviewer would say things like, do you remember the time that Sam came to your classroom and ripped a book? Did, did he do it on purpose or was it an accident? Well, you see these kinds of stereotype things a lot, especially in where one parent will create a monster of the other parent. Sound familiar? Where you also see stereotype cases is in physical and sexual abuse cases where an interviewer is reckless enough to do this, which, by the way, isn't, is not typical. 
It's noted that not all interviewers do this. Only the worst interviewers do it, but they're but they're out there. And sometimes they do things that they're not aware of. So sometimes it's deliberate and sometimes it's not, to be fair. But when they interview a child, if they're not getting a disclosure from the child and they think that the child's in denial or is protecting somebody, they'll say things like, well, don't you want to help keep us, keep everybody safe and so we can keep this person in jail so he doesn't hurt all the kids? You know, your friends have already told us that, you know, he hurt them. Don't, don't you want to help us protect your friends? And so they start creating this negative stereotype about a bad person. You know, he's in prison. Let's not let him out. Let's, you know, let's keep, let's prevent him from victimizing other kids. But we see this in custody cases. We see this in high conflict divorce cases as well, where one parent is stereotyped typed and, and described to children in a very negative way. I I don't know if I had said this in a previous episode, but I've had one child tell me once when he he said his father pushed his mother down the stairs when he was pregnant, when his mother was pregnant with him. Now, obviously, the child couldn't remember anything like that, even if it happened. So somebody is manipulating the child, contaminating the child's memory. Well, you remember how, how angry, you know, your mother was and she started throwing things around the kitchen, that type of thing. In CeCe's studies, he argued that a significant minority of kids have had their actual memories corrupted by these suggestive techniques. That's that's why lie detector methods, he said, don't work with these kids because they're not lying. They have come to believe their false memories, if you will, their false reports. And that's why they're called false beliefs. If you corrupt a memory that's part of a child's autobiography, it's who they are now. There's no deprogramming techniques that will suddenly repair a false memory. Yeah, you can talk kids out of testifying about it. You can coerce or bully them, and they won't say anything. But it isn't because you've rehabilitated their memory. They deeply believe what they were saying was truthful. Remember this case with John Strassel? They tried, like Ed Dickens, to convince this kid that this wasn't real. This kid wouldn't let go of that memory. So it's important for judges, guardians, others who are interviewing kids to really appreciate that maybe months before other people were interviewing or communicating. It's not necessarily interviews. It could be conversations that are said directly to a child. It could be conversations that a child overhears in not so a a neutral way that they're describing somebody. So depending on what's being said to the child, it could either improve or corrupt their memory. Everybody knows only too well that there are an enormous number of children every year in this country and others that are abused. Most of them are neglected. A lot of them are physically abused and some are sexually abused. And all the official numbers that are reported are really an underestimate because so many go unreported. Some kids never tell. So Everybody is mindful of this, and everyone knows real abuse happens far more often than anyone is comfortable thinking about. And yet most people also know that there have been some very sad miscarriages of justice where innocent men and women have been accused of things that they didn't do. So you have these two tensions pulling on you if you work in this area. Some people would prefer if this research in this area was never done because it can be used to discredit real abuse victims in their testimony. And that's really true. But it also means 
that some people can abuse the concept of parental alienation. And it doesn't mean parental alienation isn't true either. So that's something to think about. Hey, thank you for coming in. And uh, this wraps up uh, episode number three. And we hope you all have a, a great time. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more information on this topic, please visit www.drbobevans.com or www.naopas.com. We offer classes for both legal and mental health professionals to help educate them on the signs and strategies of parental alienation and how to move forward for a healthier environment for the children of divorce. Please visit www.naopas.com and sign up for our courses and use coupon code PODCAST for a 50% discount. <music>